Welcome to the You on the Camino de Santiago podcast, Season 3. This podcast is for and about people getting ready for their first ever pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago in Spain, France, and Portugal. With your host, Camino guide and longtime pilgrim, Nancy Reynolds of the Camino Experience. This is Nancy coming to you from Pamplona, Spain, where I am staying the night before heading to Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port. This place is like a magnet for me, always drawing me back. It is my home away from home on the Camino, the perfect city, in my mind anyway. I will be in Spain for five weeks, and this first week will be spent at the start of the Camino Frances from Saint-Jean to Logroño, checking things out, updating my Camino Frances getting started audio guide, and hopefully visiting the site that George and John talked about a few episodes back in episode one of this season. It's the site where George's friend Aaron died on the Camino in 2022, near Torres del Rio. I'm going back to look for that site and the memorial that is set up there so I can pay tribute to Aaron, George, and John and the friendships they all share. Next week, I move ahead on the trail to Rabanal del Camino, where I will be the writer in residence at the Stone Boat Guest House. The boat will be closed for overnight guests for the season by then, and I will be hanging out and producing the podcast and working one-on-one with pilgrims to help them get ready for their 2024 pilgrimages. Let me tell you a bit more about that. I've started hosting one-on-one coaching or mentoring sessions with pilgrims who want some, well, super targeted, totally personalized assistance in planning and preparing for their Caminos. I'm starting small with this, so this week I'm going to open up sessions only for those people on my email list. They will get all the details this week in my weekly newsletter. Then next week I will share with you, my podcast listeners, more details if I still have some slots open, but I'm only taking on five more pilgrims at this point. If you aren't already on my email list and you would like to be first in line for those five slots, be sure to follow the link in the show notes to get my top 10 Camino tips and get on my email list. You can also get that by going to my website, thecaminoexperience.com. I also have limited space left in the Camino Experience group I'm leading in May next year. That group will start their monthly group coaching Zoom calls in a couple weeks. So if you are considering joining that group and not starting your pilgrimage on the Frances route alone, I want to invite you to reach out now so we can get you all set up before that first group call. Details about that are on my website and also through the link in the show notes. Now, I said that the stone boat will be closed for the season, but they will still be offering massage services for a few more weeks. 
So if you are in the area around Rabanal del Camino on the Frances route, and your body and soul are ready for some love, stop by and let's get you set up for a session with Priscilla. The stone boat is located directly on the Camino Trail, so look for the sign when you get to Rabanal, and please do stop by to say hello in any event. Okay, shall we get to my guest for this episode now? Today I'm talking with Chad, who you met in Season 2, Episode 18. Chad walked the Portuguese route with his family in 2022 to support his wife in fulfilling on her Camino dream. This year, Chad walked the Frances on his own, as a pilgrimage in the truest sense. Chad shares with us some of his favorite albergue stays and gives us his take on comparing the Portuguese and Frances routes. We also get into an interesting discussion about women's safety on the trail from a man's perspective. I think you're going to enjoy this whole conversation. Let's say hello to Chad. Hi, Nancy here, back again with Chad, who you may remember from one of our previous episodes. That was in season two. I, I got to talk to Chad as he was getting ready for his walk on the Camino Frances. And so, hey, let me just say hello and welcome back, Chad. It is great to be back. Thank you so much, Nancy. Oh, my gosh. I am so eager to hear all about your experiences. And I just want to mention, so my listeners know, I had the chance to meet Chad in Pamplona. And also his first day out of Saint-Jean, we met at Refuge Orson. I caught him coming up the mountain and we stopped and chatted and had a snack. And did we meet any place else be- besides those two places? Uh, on Rosavias later that night or the first day, yes. Okay, good. So you really surprised me there at Orson. I came up the hill and it started raining and, uh, you know, that's a couple hours of pretty, pretty tough walking. And uh, I had just been talking to another pilgrim who had been having some trouble and I was trying to encourage her. And uh, here I come up the hill and I go, oh, this must this must be the place. I'm ready for some coffee. And there is Nancy's smiling face under a, a, a purple umbrella in, in her blue puff jacket. And uh, that was a great surprise. So, yes, I got my first my first cafe con leche um, with a friend and uh, in the sprinkling rain there, there at Orson. Uh, and I'll be honest, it's one of my favorite things is to surprise show up on the Camino when I know someone's out there and they don't know I'm there and just to hello. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I really, I was appreciative of your encouragement. And uh, like I said, it was great to see you in person. Um, that was an interesting day on the, uh, on the trail. It was pretty, uh, pretty wet and rainy. It was foggy on the way up, but the second half it poured rain. And um, so I didn't get the pictures or I didn't get the views that some people do, but I had a very good experience. But it was it was funny when I saw you later that night in Ron Cervellas, I said, well, I knew that that Nancy was there and had a car. And if I really had trouble, she'd come and pick me up. And Nancy said, no way. I would have told you to get your butt down the mountain yourself. And then I would have called your wife and told on you. (laughs) I just thought that was that was a great response. And I thought, well, Nancy really is a coach. She may be more of a coach than a friend because she wasn't going to help me out that way. Oh, I love that. I love that. I had sort of forgotten that that conversation took place, but 
yeah, I, that is, yeah, that's exactly what I would say to someone like you. <laughs> that's, that's right. And then we talked about having dinner together um, two nights later in Pamplona, and you suggested that we could do a Pinchos crawl and that I could invite other pilgrims um, along the way too. And so that was fun. And that's exactly what I did is I made friends those next couple of days. Uh, I told them that I was going to be meeting a friend in Pamplona and she was going to show us around the Pinchos bars and we could have a good time. And I said, and they could invite their friends as well. And so when, when I met up with you, there were 17 of us. <laughs> 17 people. So there's, people. there's two sides to this, right? So you, 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 you have to get who Chad is. I just want to say that to my listeners. You have to get who Chad is. Chad's a bit magnetic, you know, and, and Chad just, Chad just attracts people who just love to be around a good, bright, positive hmm. being. Right. And so seriously, I walked around the corner knowing I was meeting them all at tourist information in Pamplona. And there is a crowd. I'm not <laughs> kidding. A crowd of 17 people all waiting for me to show them the pincho seat. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we we made it work and it was a, it was a fun evening. That was that was really fun. And, you know, that's another one of my absolute favorite things is to show people around Pamplona. Mm. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Just to say, you know, let's blow off some steam. You just came off the mountain or you just came on this incredibly challenging three to four day walk up and over the Pyrenees. And there there are always surprises at how hard it is. Mm. And then, of course, by the time you get to Santiago, you won't remember that and you'll think, oh, it wasn't that hard. It wasn't a big deal. But when you're in Pamplona, that's when I get to see, yeah, that was actually really hard. Yeah. Really hard. It was challenging. So let's talk about a couple things. So you you walked from Saint Jean all the way to where? Where'd you finish? Well, I didn't stop in. Well, I stopped in Santiago, but I didn't end there. Um, I I went all the way to the ocean. So first, I I walked to Musia, and then the, my final day, I walked from Musia to Fistera. Wonderful. And, um, had my had my last night of the Camino um, there at the little hotel by the lighthouse. And it was oh, fantastic. Dreamy. And how many days did you take for this whole journey? People will want to know how many days that was. I started um, walking on June 1st and I got to Fistera on J July 11th. Okay. And so along the way, I took some rest days. I took rest days in Pamplona and Lyon in Burgos. And then again, some days in Santiago as well. Okay. So I want to just just talk about the beginning just for a moment and and talk about the role that the weather plays. And mm -hmm. so so here was the funny thing. I was driving to meet you in Roncesvalles and I was in a car and I got caught in the same torrential downpour that you did. It was so heavy that I had to pull over under an overpass because I couldn't see out the windshield. And that's what you were walking in. Yeah, it was it was raining pretty heavy that day. I was really glad that I had a, a poncho that covered both me and my pack, mm -hmm. um, and it did a, it did a good job of keeping keeping me dry. Um, the thing I was most afraid of is I had I had spent two nights in Saint Jean, and one of the pilgrims from the first night had left their iPad, and so I was taking it to Roncesvalles to meet up with them, and I kept thinking that iPad is in my backpack. And if that gets wet, I'm in trouble. 
And so I was very glad that everything stayed dry um, besides my shoes. Okay. So, uh, you know, I definitely had wet feet and uh, it was, it was a trek getting through there in the rain. I was probably halfway over the mountain and there's a van that sometimes is there. And I had just finished drinking an Aquarius and eating a banana when it opened up and all of us kind of rushed under the tarp. And um, I don't know, there was 10 to 12 of us pilgrims maybe at the time. And I just looked out and saw it didn't look like it was going to uh, let up. And uh, like it had a couple other times earlier in the day. And so that's when I got my poncho out and decided I've I've just got to walk in this. And so the rest of the day was the rest of the day was in rain. Wow. And the thing about the weather forecast, this is something that that is much more enjoyable to observe when you know you're in a car or you're not walking out on the trail. But I noticed there are several different types of rain forecasts. Mm. It'll say that there will be rain. It'll say that it will be, and I'm looking at an app when I when I say this, mm. there might be showers, there might be rain, and there might be thunderstorms. And it's the thunderstorms that actually feel like it's raining at you, that mm. the rain is so strong and so intense. And I think that's what was going on that day. Yeah, it it uh, it certainly did that day. And then I got rained on, I don't know, maybe three or four days later. And then the amazing thing was the rain on the Camino for me was over. Those were the only two days I got rain at all. Sometimes it rained in the evening or in the afternoon when I was done walking, but I actually only had two days that I dealt with any rain. So lucky. No rain in Galicia at all. That's crazy. Galicia is known for rain. Exactly. That's what I thought. So with those forecast showers, when the forecast is for showers, that's nothing to worry about because that might not be where you are. It might be brief, a little bit of wet. The rain is more likely to go all day, but those thunderstorms are the ones that you want to duck and cover or certainly cover if you're walking. That's good to know that. So the experience that you had walking in the rain, and, and, and I would love for you to talk about your expectations of that first day walking over the Pyrenees and the reality. Mm. Well, I certainly seen pictures that other people have taken, you know, of, of that first day walk. And I would love to do it when there wasn't rain and be able to have those views and see more of the animals. But I tell you what it does do is that with, with that poncho on over my head and my head facing down instead of more looking out, it gives you a good first day of internal looking at what's going on in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. So it was a very introspective day that because I wasn't able to take my phone out and take some pictures and I wasn't able, you weren't talking as much to the other pilgrims Mm -hmm. because you were all just getting through. So it it changed the focus of the day a bit, but one that, that was good. And I remember thinking if it does this, the entire route, I am going to continue walking every step of this. Wow. Okay. This rain is not going to dampen my spirit. And if this is what, if this is what walking the Camino looks like for me this time, I'm going to keep moving forward one step at a time till I get to the end. It is such a good perspective or mindset to take on the Camino with because the weather is unpredictable. We have no say in that. And that really brings you back to what this is. This is a pilgrimage. That's right. For some people, it will be a walking holiday, but the Camino de Santiago is a pilgrimage route to a sacred destination. 
Yes, that is so true. If it had been just a walking vacation for me, I would have been discouraged. But knowing that it was a pilgrimage, that means that you're going to be there and you're going to be be present regardless of what the circumstances are around. Yeah. Ooh, it's sobering and also encouraging at the same time for me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you miss out on the, the scenery, which is why people want to walk the high road, the Napoleon route out of Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port. Yeah, you miss all those photos and some of the conversations. The other challenge when you're walking in the rain is foot care. Yes. Yeah, and, and bathroom breaks <laughs> because on the trail, there are no toilets. Yes. From Refuge Orison over the mountain to Roncesvalles, there are no public toilets. And so any business has to be done behind a non-existent tree because there aren't a lot of places that you can right. be discreet. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, I did not need to uh, go to the bathroom on that on that trek. And yeah, I was able to I was able to get down on the other side and right. uh, I was tired and my feet were wet. Unfortunately, I was not able to dry out my shoes before that next day. There was really no way to do that. Okay. So the next day I uh, I definitely had some damp shoes to put on. And that was something that I had had to make a decision on with foot with footwear. Uh-huh. Am I going to buy waterproof boots mm. or am I going to buy ones that are more breathable? And my strategy with it is that to keep my feet dry, it meant I really needed breathable boots, even that, even though that meant that when I got rained on, I knew they were going to get wet. Mm -hmm. But the trick of stuffing them with newspaper at the end of the day, and that newspaper absorbs the water out and helps dry your feet. That was the problem that first day is I couldn't get newspapers in Roncevaeus. But the next night when I got to Zuburi, they had them available there and my feet were totally dry the next day when I put my boots on. Perfect. Yeah. Very good. Hmm. Tricks, tricks of the pilgrim. Stuff yes. your boots with newspaper and it'll absorb all the water. Yeah. Yeah. And the other part of it too is that foot care thing. You know, it's a strong argument in my mind for, for making sure you have trained with the fully loaded backpack you'll carry on the Camino so that your feet get used to rubbing the way they're going to rub when they're on the Camino. So, you know, before you go, if you're have any hot spots or potential because pulling over to take care of your feet in torrential rain is probably something you'll just skip. Yes. Yeah, that's 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 very true. Yeah, imagine trying to break out a first aid kit and find something dry to put on a wet foot in the rain. Yeah, that wouldn't work very well. And there there isn't really shelter those first that first stage from Saint-Jean to Roncesvalles with the exception of that little awning on that food van. Yes. Yeah. So it's a tricky one. Tricky one. Messes with your expectations on day one. Yes, it did. So you just a moment ago said this time. So I want to remember mm -hmm. and remind people that Chad, ha you have walked the Camino Portuguese. You walked that with your family from Lisbon to Santiago with your wife and two of your daughters. That's correct. Yeah, we did that the, the previous summer. Okay. So would you be willing to do sort of a compare and contrast of the two routes for us? So if somebody is thinking, I can't decide between the Portuguese and the Camino Frances, what would you tell them? We walked the, uh, the Portuguese. Uh, for some reason, it just felt good to us. That was my wife's dream to do the Camino. And uh, she had one friend that had done the, the Norte route, the Del Norte. 
And, um, but when she finished, she spent some time in Portugal and she told Jamie that I think you might really enjoy Portugal. And it just sat right with my wife. So we looked at that route. She knew she wanted to do a longer one. That's why we started in Lisbon and not in Porto. And it was a fantastic journey for, for our family. And we just really enjoyed it. The, the thing that we found that we could not prepare for was the cobblestones. There is, there is nothing in Idaho to prepare you for what walking <laughs> on cobblestones is like. And that was, that was definitely a challenge. Sometimes I would say that is one of the differences between the two routes. Mm. And one reason that I would suggest people that are doing the Portuguese, make sure that they really have party soles on whatever shoes that they are wearing, because they can really get torn up on those cobblestones. So, so hang on a second. When you say cobblestones, how much of the trail is cobblestones? Is it just in the cities and the villages and the towns, or is the actual Camino trail between towns and villages? Are you walking on cobblestones? Yeah. Sometimes even between them, there's, there are sections that there are cobblestones there, you know, and I didn't really pay attention to how much time are we on cobblestones or how much time we're on the road or how much time is it dirt. But it's definitely any time that there was an option to get over to the side and not walk on the cobblestones, you could see my family getting in single file line to do that. Okay. They're just not the most comfortable things to to walk on. Okay. But I have heard people, you know, trying to compare the two routes mm-hmm. and say, you know, and if they've done the the Frances, I've heard some people, well, we even walked with some people that um, they weren't prepared for the the Portuguese to be quite like it was. They expected it to be just like the Frances. And they expected there to be more stops, more uh, abergays, more cafes. And especially between Lisbon and Porto, there's not as many options. But since we hadn't done a Camino before, we didn't have any expectations. Great. And so that section between Lisbon and Porto, um, we absolutely loved because we didn't have anything to compare it to. The places that we stayed, friends that we made, um, those towns in Portugal, the Portugal people, the Portuguese food. Um, I can't imagine not having those first two weeks. So if anyone was okay. even remotely interested in doing it, I would say it's a it's a fantastic Camino. Oh, and good. You, I think you just have to go into it with a very open heart, open mind to let each Camino be its own experience. Good advice. How about the distances between towns? I know on the Frances, the farthest you ever have to walk is 17 kilometers. And in many cases, you could hop from town to village to town, three to five to eight kilometers. What were the distances like on the Portuguese? Certainly on the, at the beginning of the Portuguese, if you go with John Briarley's book, um, those, those uh, sections are longer. They're mm-hmm. almost 30 kilometer days and you're starting out doing that. Okay. And um, so what we did is we took rest days and we took more of them at the beginning of our, of our journey. So we walked three days. So that was 90 kilometers or about 60 miles. And then we took a rest day. And that was, that was so successful for us. I think our bodies really appreciated that rest day that this time doing the Frances, I did the same thing. I walked the three days and then I took a day off in Pamplona. Smart. And it was, it was, it was really good. And my body appreciated it. I think it helps you recover from those first three days of walking, you know, um, so far and consecutive. And um, so I would encourage people to, to look at that 
once you're once you're done three days, give yourself a break. And both routes gave me a great place to to have that rest day, and I appreciated that. Yeah. Well, and I appreciated it too because then I got to share more of Pamplona with you, and also we had we had just some great conversations in that square, the Plaza Mayor, Plaza del Castillo in Pamplona. And uh, yeah, it always tickles me to know that people get to stay in Pamplona an extra day and enjoy the city because it is such a lovely city. It really was a lovely city. It was definitely one that I would go back and enjoy. Good. Very good. Anything else compare and contrast on these two routes? Like I said, that would be my, my encouragement to people is to just not compare them. Good. You know, people, I have heard some people say, well, you're on the road so much and uh, on the Portuguese. There's so Mm -hmm. many times that you're on the side of the road. And I've heard some people say that. And I went back and even asked my family, I said, do you remember walking along the side of the road a lot? And they all said, no. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I don't know if they're comparing it to something or, you know, there were certainly times where you were along the side of the road, especially when you're getting into a, a town or a city. But I, I guess it didn't impact me that much that I went, oh, this is a problem. Okay. And the other thing we did, we left early in the morning and which always helped us. It seems like people in Portugal and Spain sleep in a little bit longer. So we were walking out of towns and walking out of cities before there was any traffic. Mm. So maybe we were on the road some, but okay. honestly, I remember walking out of these little European towns that were walking right down the middle of the road. You know, and watching the sunrise, and it was just beautiful. Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate that perspective. Yeah, and so it might come down to: Do you want to walk in Portugal for most of the journey, or do you want to walk in Spain most of the journey? Yeah, and that could be maybe you have some language skills. If you speak Spanish, you might want to be on the Frances more than the Portuguese. If you don't speak either language, doesn't matter. Oh, I really appreciate the perspective. Thanks for that. Now, if you would, I would love for you to reflect a little bit on your itinerary. So you planned, uh, if I remember correctly, you had booked all of your accommodations in advance, and then you kept pretty much to that itinerary, a couple little minor changes. But would you reflect on on how that went? Yeah, I did. I was definitely a spreadsheet pilgrim for this for this trip, and really, my my heart's intention was to get there to Fistera and to stay at the the hotel there. And since there was only six rooms at the beginning of the year, I booked a room and uh, it, it was amazingly affordable because I think I was staying in the middle of the week. So it was, I don't know, I think uh, $97 or something like that. And it was definitely worth that, worth that money at the, at the very end. So I kind of built my itinerary backwards, including those rest days. And I did find that you know, having having done the Portuguese, I was uh, felt responsible for my family, and um, that was always something on my mind. Where am I going to get four of us to be able to stay and everything? And um, I felt like there were some days that I rushed some things that we didn't stop to to see something, or uh, we could have gone off the trail to you know for some different sites or whatever. And looking back, that was something on the Portuguese that I wish that I felt that freedom to to go explore those things but sometimes I felt that rush to get to the town and to find the bed and so that was something that on this trip that I knew that I was going solo and my intentions for being a pilgrimage and staying in my heart I didn't want to waste any energy 
thinking about where I was going to stay that night. And I didn't want to look at any of the other pilgrims as competitors for the beds. So that is, that's why I decided I was going to book my rooms. And I was intentional about where I was going to stay. I knew that since I was walking by myself that I would need to interact with others in the evening. So I looked for for abergays and, and hostels and different things that had community meals. And that would help me make a decision where I was going to stay that night. If I had two or three different choices, I would look for the one that you could buy the community dinner at that place because I wanted that interaction over a meal. So I was, I was intentional about that. Great. And I definitely, when I was talking to other pilgrims along the way, and that's one of the things you'd say is, where are you going tonight? Have you already, have you already got a space? And when I mentioned how I had planned this, people said, oh, I definitely am spending energy thinking about where I'm going to stay tonight. And I just never had to do that because I had already figured that out. It's a really good argument for booking in advance, which gets some bad press. There are pros and cons to it, certainly, but I do understand. Yeah. And that's, that's what I needed on this trip. That was more important to me than the freedom. It did mean that I needed to stay to my schedule. And there was the, you know, there's the fear of, well, what if you get injured? What if you can't get there? And I just had to have faith and believe that I was putting together this itinerary for a reason. And I was mm. able to, I was able to stay on it. There are a couple of places where you can't make reservations. Yeah. And they were places that I wanted to stay. So I had backups in case those things didn't work out. And then if, if it did work out, then I would call the other backup place and said that I, I don't need that reservation. Please open it up for another pilgrim. But mostly I was able to keep exactly on track of, of what I intended to do. Ah, it's, it's a great success story. And when you chose your accommodations, you said you went for the shared meals, which are typically in albergues. Were you mostly in albergues or were you also in private rooms? How did you shake that out? Yeah, sometimes I stayed in private rooms. If I did a, if I had a very long uh, walk, sometimes I would think, okay, I'm going to need a really good rest night tonight. I'm going to need a good night's sleep. And if I've walked two or three days like that, then maybe I'll book myself a private room, but in an abergay. And it's nice that they have some of those, some of those options. And I had just budgeted enough that I could make that decision. So sometimes I had, I booked it ahead that I'd booked a private room. And there were a couple of times where I got to an abergay and they had a private room available. And so I just upgraded and, and got the room. But some of my favorite experiences were staying in rooms where I was with other people as well. Ran on, there's a church there that the program that they have was just absolutely fantastic. And we didn't even have beds. It's just blue mats on the floor. And, um, but that was absolutely one of my favorite experiences with the other pilgrims. I would go back in a heartbeat and stay there. Um, and I would tell anybody, you know, this is, this is a worthwhile experience. So yeah, that comfort does not always need to be the main priority for you making decisions of where you're going to stay. In fact, if you're on a pilgrimage, comfort should be a little lower on your list in terms of your decision-making. There you go. There's a, there's a measure right there. Yeah. So just to make sure that that one was clear, that was Grañón, which yes. it has an incredible reputation for hospitality for pilgrims with the meal. I believe the meal is prepared by volunteers from the village, I think is 
What is that what it is still? There was only two uh, hospital arrows there. They usually have three, but there was only two there. And it meant that all of the pilgrims did all of the work. They kind of directed us. Oh, wow. So actually, when I walked into the church, the people that were taking down all of the information and everything, they uh, they were other pilgrims that had just got there earlier. And setting up the rooms, preparing the meal, cleaning up, we all did it together. And there was probably, oh, I don't know, 40 of us or so that were there that night. There's two big rooms to stay in. And the program that they had in the church afterwards was just fantastic. Wonderful. And you know, I think that that is actually what we're all longing for. We're longing to be connected and part of that community. Absolutely. And, and the other side of it, I stayed, I'm trying to think where it was. So it would be the town after the iron cross. After the cruise to Pharaoh. Okay. Would that be El Acebo? No. Molina Seca? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Down at the bottom of the hill. Yes. Yeah. So when I stayed there, no, I think I walked all the way to Pomferrada. Pomferrada. Okay. Okay. So I walked to Pomferrada after the Iron Cross, stayed at a new Abergay, and it's bright and shiny and clean, and the men have different rooms than the women, and the showers are nice, and there's a place to put all of your stuff. And there was not a word spoken in my room at all that night. I think there was eight, nine of us men in the room, and there was absolutely no conversations, no community, no interaction at all. And it was one of the worst nights of my life, even though we slept good, there was no connection. And I thought I would not do that again. I would I would rather stay with fewer people in a mixed room with snores, getting <laughs> along with people and talking than having this antiseptic, clean, perfect night stay. It just, yeah, it was it was not what I wanted. My soul needed something different. Well, and it begs the question, what is it that creates the albergue experience? Is it the facility? Is it the hospitaleros or is it your fellow pilgrims? Exactly. And a combination of all of those things. Mm -hmm. But it was one of those things that I realized after I did it. And then the next night I had this great experience with just a couple of pilgrims. And I went, oh, this is what my soul longs for. How do I create more of this in my life? And that's the question right there, Chad. How do I create more of this in my life? Because I think what happens is when we get home, we find that that ready-made albergue experience is not there anymore. Mm. And how do we create that? You have, you have a wonderful family that you live with. So you've got some built-in connections. But for so many people, they come home, I've come home and felt completely lost because sure. I don't have other people who are also equally eager to create that experience. Right. Mm. Wow. Lucky you to have a Camino family at home. I know I, I, that's right. I know I need that in my life. So yes, that's what I'm trying to create. Yeah. And I realized that you can do the Camino and not have that. You can isolate yourself. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, stay in private rooms. You can walk by yourself. You can do things to make sure that you don't engage with, with people. And you're going to have a much different experience, you know, and opening your, yourself up, your heart, your mind 
so that you are interacting with people and sharing the journey, that's going to make a whole different pilgrimage for you. I completely agree. You know, I stay in private rooms exclusively now and, and it's simply to honor my own needs for privacy and sleep. And what I've noticed is that if I put forth the effort to connect with people during the day and at the cafes, then I have the experience. Mm-hmm. I'll still sleep alone, but I have to make the effort. I have right. to interact with people. And for me, as someone who tends to lean towards high privacy needs and more introverted in my sleeping environment, even in the albergues, I found I could become very lonely if I didn't make that effort. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, it certainly presents more opportunities if you stay in the albergues and they're different opportunities if you stay in the private rooms. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. I appreciate, I appreciate hearing about that. Some of those great albergue experiences. Now there's a topic that I'd like to talk about with you. And I've been trying to think about how to even approach this topic because it's the topic is women's safety. And there's been a lot of talk lately, or I would say the last couple of years, there's been an increase in talk on social media, specifically the Facebook groups that I'm in of women struggling with safety issues and local Spanish men being inappropriately aggressive or doing things on the side of the trail that women really don't need or want to watch and even approaching women while doing these activities. And I have personally witnessed over the last 18 years, probably four occasions where I have seen things personally with my own eyes and I have sort of a, an attitude of, you know, knock it off, you're being stupid kind of thing. But for some women, this is terrifying to come mm-hmm. across these things. And I'm very interested in your perspective as a male pilgrim, as someone who is a decent, good, upstanding man, family man, who would walk and see women walking solo on the trail. Did you have any interaction or experience or hear of anything that was related to women's safety on the trail? Hmm. Well, when we walked the Portuguese and I knew it was going to be my wife and daughters going, I definitely walked, I I went into that thinking, oh, I'm there to take care of them. Hmm. My experience was once we were doing it was they would have been fine by themselves. They really didn't need dad being there protecting them. We met single women that were walking on both trails. And I think that the Camino is probably one of the safest places to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think walking here in the United States in some places would be safe to do it like it is in Spain. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It really is safe. I also recognize being a male, an adult male, I don't have some of the same concerns when I'm out walking by myself. You know, I don't have to really think about my my safety the way that that a woman has that in the back of her mind. So uh, certainly one of the things that I would try to do when I saw women walking on the trail is I would greet them and I would look them in the eye and I would smile at them and let them see that I'm friendly and that I care and that I'm not uh, I'm not being aggressive towards them in any way. Um, certainly the things that you talk about. And that you bring up, I think it's appropriate for for people to watch what you're talking about. 
in the Avergays, it is interesting. I think I heard one of your, it was either you or one of your guests talking about this issue and talking about some of the Europeans uh, seem to be more freer and changing their clothes. Yeah. And uh, we've definitely experienced that. The Americans tend to be more private and go into the bathrooms. And I would say that is something for men to consider um, when they are around other women. That, that, so this would be my encouragement to European men. Don't change, <laughs> don't change in front of, in front of others that, that maybe they don't want to see that. Um, <laughs> my daughter got a good eyeful of a, uh, one of one of our friends butts <laughs> and she's dad I, I'm scarred for life <laughs> and uh, so that is something that I did just for others benefits if I was going to change my clothes I went into the other room um, I was definitely in rooms where some of the women were changing in front of me and I would just turn my head you know just try to create a space where they feel safe and and not being ogled at I, I think it's important to to do that I did not see anything on either of those routes that I thought was safety related. I, I didn't come upon that towards the women um, that had to do with any uh, other people. But I did see an aggressive dog mm. on this route. And I don't remember exactly exactly where I was, but this dog started coming towards me. And I raised my poles up and it stopped and just kept barking at me. But I looked behind me and there was a lady about 50 yards behind me and she was terrified. Mm. And it was obvious that she was terrified. And so instead of walking on, I stood there with my poles raised and I motioned to her that she could go ahead and, and walk and I'd watch this dog. And so the dog finally took off. And as she got to me, she, she thanked me so much for, you know, protecting her and being there for her. So I'd say, you know, that's something that we can all do is look out for each other in those times where there's, where, you know, there's any sort of fear or something going on that we can show up for, for each other. But that's the only time that I saw someone be really scared on okay. the trail. And it was a dog, not a person. Okay. Okay. So I'm also thinking about, you know, if I, I love the concept of allies and mm -hmm. to, as a single woman traveling alone, you know, I remember back when I first started walking, I was 40 and mm. I attracted more attention than I do now. Mercifully, that's one of the gifts of aging is that I don't attract the attention of local men the way that I used to. They tended to be more interested in younger women. And, and I'm the stories I'm hearing indicates that that mm. is still the case. But I did have to learn how to be indignant in Spanish, you know, when mm. a man would say, shall we go to the hotel room over there? And I'm like, how do I, how do I be like, are you, are you, are you kidding me in Spanish? You know, like right. how, to, how to convey that tone of get, get away from me now. Right. You know, and so I'm, I'm just thinking how important it is for solo female pilgrims to have allies yeah. like yourself, you know, to, to meet men who are good guys, you know, who might be able to just have eyes on them while they're on the trail right. in a good way, you know, like, like yes. in a, not in a, in any kind of an uncomfortable way, but to just to be looking out for them. Yeah. One thing I, I would encourage people to do, we used WhatsApp a lot on, on the Camino. And for me, it was nice. I don't use WhatsApp while I'm back home. So for me, I, I got off social media, but I was on WhatsApp and used that to connect with other pilgrims. 
And while I wasn't walking with people, I was definitely connecting with other people and having those conversations. And so we could check in with each other. Right. And even as we separated, some were further ahead, maybe a day or two, some were behind, but we were always sending each other information of where to stay or what to experience or what to eat or, okay, I've got a blister. I'm not going to be able to meet up with you. I'm going to take a day off here. And so I would say that's one of the ways to, if you're a solo traveler, to keep yourself connected with the pilgrims that you meet and finding a social app like that. And I think a lot of people in Europe use WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. It was an easy way to create little group conversations. And it wasn't going off all day long that I was disrupted by it because it was the group that I was interacting with on the trail. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good way to, to also keep that safety up and let people know, you know, your intentions for the day, mm. where you're going to walk, what your plans are. Mm-hmm. I know my family, they could track me on Google Maps. You know, I shared my location with them on the phone and I gave them an itinerary of where I was going to be. If I was not on the, on the trail or at that place, I'm sure they would have tried to contact me and make sure I was okay. I think that's something that you can, you can do as well as let people know okay, I'm going to walk this far today and I'm going to stay in in this place and then check in with them when you get there. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a great tip. And And it seems to me too that one of the things we can do as pilgrims is when we're meeting people along the trail, you know, to connect with them, but also just to maybe be a little bit intentional about who we connect with. As a single woman, what I look out for oftentimes are couples or two friends traveling together who I can, they, they feel like more of a safer connection. Like a, a couple really does feel safer for me because there's a woman and then there is a man and the man, men, it, whether we like it or not, whether we're feminist or not, men are perceived differently in the world than women are. And so men are less likely to be messed with by someone who would mess with a woman, I guess is what I want to say. Yeah. You know, and so to make those alliances in the albergues, in the cafes, in the bars, wherever you are in town, so that there is someone who has eyes on you. And I also also would look for people who have a children at home, adult children at mm-hmm. home. You know, you've got the eye of a father. You're going to look out for people in a way that's different than someone who doesn't have children. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. So those are who I like to connect with so that I know I always have people who know me, recognize me, who are going to just look and go, you you okay? What's going on? Or if I don't feel like walking through a stretch, you know, I, I personally have never felt unsafe on the Camino. And the more that I'm on the Camino, the stronger physically I feel, the more my attitude gets sort of like, don't mess with me. I'm strong. Don't mess with me. But it still is a good practice to know where people are, know that there's someone you know and trust coming from behind you, or that there's someone with an earshot ahead of you. Sure. That's good. So I appreciate your perspective. Thanks. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything else you'd like to share about your Camino? I got to stay with some very lovely people and that was something that I was intentional about. Some of the, some of that advice came from you in our first discussion 
And those suggestions that you gave me of, of where to stay, um, one of them was the first night in Burgos. And um, I had a great experience there. And um, the second one was at the Stone Boat in Robinall with Kim. Mm -hmm. And two very different experiences. But both of those were, were significant places for me to stay. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated that. And there were other places that that it was important for me to meet, to meet those people that they, they're spending their life in Spain, making it possible for people to stay with them and their stories. And um, I got to, I got to really connect with those people and make some friends. And um, that encouraged me along on my pilgrimage. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I got to have, that I got to have that experience. I think I'd want to encourage people too, just to lean in to whatever it is that they're experiencing on the Camino. Like I said, if comfort is your goal, you're probably not going to like the Camino every day, every step. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the things that I went to learn is how to be more present with myself. Mm. So I, early on, I started this, this mantra, be present right here, right now, these steps not thinking backwards to where I had stayed, not thinking forward to where I was going, not thinking of that cafe where I could get the next bathroom break or cafe con leche, but how do I stay present right here, right now in these steps that I am taking? And then the follow-up was, and I want to be fully present with the person that I'm with. Mm. And more often than not, I looked around and that meant I had to be fully present with me. And I spent a lot of my life probably deflecting that and taking care of other people mm -hmm. instead of listening to my own heart, listening to what my soul needs. And the Camino gave me that opportunity to be present with myself. And that is something that I am, I'm doing new things at home. Now there's new habits. There's, there's new things there. I realized I am so much more harder on myself than I am other people. And even thinking of this being a spiritual journey, what I expected to get out of it and having this grand pilgrimage time and the, and the spiritual giant that I was going to be at the end of it and realizing, oh, I do this to myself all of the time. And I need to, I need to just relax and drop that pressure and just let my soul respond to what it needs. And that was such a gift to learn on this Camino. And um, I learned to take care of myself. And it was a beautiful experience. Not easy, but I'm learning to be present. I just love what you just said, the spiritual giant that you expected to be. Oh, my gosh. Ah. We expect these things of ourselves. And I, it, you, you can't force spiritual growth. Mm -mm. You can't. You can put yourself in, in the way to, to grow, but I, I really connected to, well, I was surprised last year when, uh, when we got to Santiago and I saw all of these Celtic symbols and, and I did not realize that Galicia was Celtic. And I really did lean into that this time. And I was reading some good books on Celtic Christianity. And it was talking about a lot of soul care. And those were perfect books for me to be reading along the way. Soul care. Very good soul care. And I tell you what, 
walking into Osobrero, once you crossed that line into Galicia, it felt different. And I could tell that I was in a Celtic area and my soul just left. It was, it was magical. I would tell people, don't, if you're going to, if you're going to start and you don't have as, as far to go, I wouldn't tell them to start in Surya. Uh, I would back them up a couple of days and tell them to start and in Travadello. Mm-hmm. Yes. And walk up into Osobrero and walk into that region and then get to experience that region all the way. It was just magical to me. It's one of my favorite parts of the trail. I yeah. just love I love Trabadello. I mean, Trabadello has three incredible places to stay. There's Casa Susie, which is the albergue run by the Australian woman, Susie. And that's where I stayed. Yeah. And then there's another albergue, something leyenda, which I think is the word for legend that gets incredible reviews. And then if you want a private room, there's El Puente Peregrino, which is run by Ellie, who's from Holland. She serves the best vegetarian food. Oh my gosh. So good. Yeah. That's the trick with Trabadello. I want to stay for three nights. Stay at all places. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a problem, but yeah, but that area, you're absolutely right. It's through this gorgeous valley. And then you climb this incredibly challenging mountain and the reward at the top is such, it's such elation, such sense of, of seriously, metaphorically and literally being at the top of a mountain. A fog settled in that night. And honestly, you felt like you were in, you know, an enchanted village. And the pilgrim's mass that night at the church was very significant. Mm. That priest, there was, there were some times I felt like some of the services I went to were kind of dialed in. Mm. This is what we do every night. New set of pilgrims every night. I didn't feel that way in uh, Osobrero at all. It was fun to honor the priest that was the one that was responsible for the yellow arrows and, uh, you know, who's buried there in the church. Elias Valinia. Thank you for saying his name. I did not remember his name, but that mass was significant to me. In fact, I, I've got tattoos in Santiago based on what that priest shared with us that night. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Will you describe it to us? Yeah, you know, the greeting that everybody does on the Camino now, they say Buen Camino. But I think in in past times, one would say Ultrea, and the response back was Et Suzea. And the priest was talking about how the first word, Ultrea, means let's go forward, let's keep moving, let's keep going on. And the, the response is, and let's go higher. And... That is so much what this journey was about for me. It's about moving forward and about moving higher. And so I got those two words tattooed on my, on my inner wrists so that I can see those because that is what I want to take back into, into my life. So that was the gift that the Camino gave me. So the one with Ultrea has a, an arrow underneath it and the Susea on the other one has a shell on it as well. So I've got some of that. Uh, Camino sim- symbology there on uh, on my wrist that I can see every day to remind me of the journey that I'm on. Every day. Wow. Chad, thank you so much for taking the time today to share your experiences. And I, I'm going to say, I think you are a spiritual giant. You certainly have inspired me. And in all of our conversations, 
I have felt myself pulled back to my center. So I, I hats off to you and thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And thanks for being with me. I'll look forward to your next Camino and having you back as a guest. Thank you so much, man.